There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. On this episode of Revealing the True Light, we are continuing our study of the beliefs of the Roman Catholic Church. Our primary focus will be the use of statues, candles, ashes, incense, and the final sacrament called extramunction. Now, statues and icons abound in Catholic churches. There are many images of the Lord Jesus from the time he was an infant to the time he ascended into heaven. Especially, you find the image of him hanging on the cross, which is called a crucifix. There are many statues of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and popular saints. And there are many icons or religious works of art bearing sacred images. Are the existence of these statues and icons a blatant disregard for the second commandment, as some would imply? You may be surprised at my answer. Let's go to the second commandment right now in Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 6. It's actually got more words than any of the other nine commandments. Listen closely. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what is God referring to here? He said not to bow down to these images, not just in front of them. Many times Catholics will bow down in front of an image as a reminder of something they consider sacred, but they're not actually bowing down to the image as the people did in Nebuchadnezzar's day when he reared a great image and demanded they all do obeisance to that form. It's different. It's quite a bit different. It implies submission to the idolatrous image as an actual deity. And he described those who worship idols like this as hating him. In other words, they are hostile to the revelation of monotheism. Well, Catholics are not hostile to the revelation of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three are one God. Let's go to another passage of scripture. That's Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 15 through 19. God said, take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, out of the mist of the fire. Notice God said that he did not take any kind of form 
when he spoke to them out of the midst of the fire. And then he went on to warn, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or any likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Now, the Bible did say in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And the earth shows his handiwork. And so when we see these different aspects of creation, instead of attributing divinity to these things, we should look beyond them to the greatness of the God who created them. In essence, that's what God is saying here. Now, in all fairness, Catholics would insist that the statues and images in their cathedrals and churches are merely a means of remembering certain revered personalities considered saints or the Lord Jesus himself. They're not objects of worship themselves. They're more like pictures of loved ones that we carry around in our wallets that remind us of the ones we love. It would be easy on the basis of these passages of Scripture to believe that God has forbidden the use of all images in worship. However, if we search the Scriptures, we will find the opposite is true. In fact, God at times has actually commanded the production of certain images for the use of worship or for the use of miraculous healings. Let me go to scripture references to prove my point. For instance, God commanded in Exodus chapter 25, verses 18 through 20, that images of cherubim should be on the lid to the Ark of the Covenant, which was the mercy seat, and that the entire thing should be made of one piece of gold. Now, cherubim are heavenly creatures. The passage of scripture I read just a bit ago in Exodus 20, verses 3 through 6, said that no image should be made of anything in heaven above. And yet here it seems like God has broken his own commandment and told them to make these images of cherubim. However, you need to notice clearly that the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant were not objects of worship. They were merely symbolic of the worship of the true God. They were pointed toward the glory that rested on the ark and a reminder that that was the focal point between heaven and earth because these were heavenly creatures represented in an earthly solid form, but not to be worshiped, absolutely not to be worshiped. And later on in the temple, there were two other cherubim facing outward on either side of the ark. Now you have another example with the brazen serpent in Exodus chapter 21. Do you remember when the soul of the people was much discouraged because of their journey through the desert and they began complaining and murmuring and grumbling and 
that resulted in a plague of fiery serpents coming against the camp of Israel. And they were venomous creatures that had a deadly effect. Many were dying from the venom of these vipers. And they begged Moses, they said, pray and ask God to take away these serpents from us. And instead, God gave him a plan on how to deal with it. In Numbers chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at that bronze serpent, he lived. So here we have an image of something that is not heavenly, but earthly, a direct contradiction of the second commandment. So is God contradicting himself? Is he telling Moses to do something that previously he told him not to do? Once again, let me emphasize that the brass serpent on the pole was not an object to be worshipped, but it was a means of representing a point of contact where the people's faith could be released to be healed by the power of God. They were not healed by the serpent. They were healed by the power of God. Now, people tend to take things too far, and they actually later on set the brazen serpent up as an idol and worshiped it. And Hezekiah, during the time of his reign, was destroying all the idol images in the land. And he came to the brass serpent and he tore it down and had his men beat it into dust. And he called it Nehushtan, which means a piece of brass. He was trying to communicate to the people that they were giving too much devotion and accrediting too much power to the image itself. They made that error. They shifted from it being a point of contact to an object of adoration, which is a blatant disregard of the second commandment. Now, God's two main concerns seem to be these. Number one, that statues promote the worship of beings, whether they are false or actual existent, creatures other than God, or the use of images or statues sometimes could involve the misrepresentation of the appearance and the nature of God. For instance, in Hinduism, many times you find various deities represented as being half human and half animal, like uh, the monkey god or, or the elephant god. Idols in that culture, in that religion, are even fed, clothed, bathed, and it is believed that the spirit of the god or the goddess actually dwells in the image. Now, that is totally wrong, and that is a total disregard of God's commandment from Mount Sinai. But Protestants do some things that are very similar to what Catholics do, and I think sometimes they're too hard on Catholics in this area and don't look at their own practices. Because I've seen many Protestants that have the image of a dove on their coat or their blouse, or maybe they use the image of fire representing Pentecost, or the fish symbol representing Christianity. 
Quite often you see the images of lions and lambs representing the lion of the tribe of Judah and the Lamb of God. And you find these in churches as well as personal use in the homes of believers. So is that wrong too? Or are these things a means of reminding ourselves of certain things that are sacred, that are vitally important to our faith? not to be worshiped themselves, not to be treated like magical things that somehow have a power to keep us safe or blessed. That's wrong, but it's not wrong to remind yourself of the dove that came down on Jesus when he was baptized in the River Jordan and how the Holy Spirit was represented as a dove. He is not a dove, but he was represented as having some of the characteristics of a dove. So if I were to wear a lapel pin with a dove, it doesn't mean I'm idolatrous. It just means I'm remembering something wonderful that God did in this world. Now, I do differ in a major area with what some Catholics feel is acceptable. I have a problem with kissing statues I think that goes too far, that crosses a line. And I also believe that the statues of Mary and of the saints that are supposedly there to be an aid in venerating those particular saints and appealing to them for intercession, that is in itself wrong because I do not believe that Mary or the saints are able to intercede in our behalf. First of all, they're not omnipresent. They cannot be cognizant of the prayers of multiplied millions of Catholics worldwide simultaneously praying to them to pray in their behalf or appealing to them to pray in their behalf. They would have to be omnipresent, omniscient, attributes that belong only to God. So I do believe those statues are wrong in the sense that they give a wrong impression of the power of those saints to have an influence in the lives of Catholic people. And I do believe that is a serious error. Now, what about these other objects that are used in worship, in Catholicism, such as candles? Votive candles are used that are associated with a vow, but quite often they're used in honor of Mary or a saint invoking their help, asking for them to pray in their behalf, and the flame, because it continues to burn, is like a constant reminder to Mary or to that saint to pray for them. Now, that is wrong. However, there is a biblical basis for the use of a flame. The menorah lampstand in the tabernacle of Moses which represented the fire and the light of truth burning in Israel constantly. But other uses are wrong and erroneous, as those that I just mentioned. Incense, well, there is a biblical use of incense. There was an altar of incense in the tabernacle of Moses and later on in the temple. And incense, being a very sweet aroma, ascended into the air and then curled its way around into the Holy of Holies. And it was all symbolic and representative 
of the prayers of the saints. David said, let my prayer be like incense and the lifting up of my hands like the evening sacrifice. Well, the priests could not go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could once a year, but the smoke of the incense could. And so it represented how we cannot physically go into the throne room of God, but our prayers can. Should we use incense now? You don't find any New Testament example of incense being used. There is an Old Testament basis for the belief, but I do not think it should have a prominent place in worship. What about holy water? Praying over water and using it in infant baptism or using it to sprinkle people in for various purposes. Is there a basis of that scripturally? Well, yes, there was something called the water of purification in the Old Testament. You don't find examples in the New of this particular thing. The priest would make the water of purification by taking a red heifer, reducing it to ashes along with hyssop and cedar wood, and then they would take the ashes and mix it in the water, and it would be sprinkled on the unclean. It would be sprinkled on lepers, for instance, and and in various uses to render people clean who had become unclean because of some sin or some error or touching the dead in some way in the Old Testament. Now, is that relevant now? Again, you find no New Testament standard for this taking place. Well, what about ashes? Is there a biblical precedent for the use of ashes? Well, I find that Job, when he had his final visitation where God came to him, repented in dust and ashes, and the prophets repented in sackcloth and ashes. That's found in Isaiah 58, verse 5. And so ashes are a representation of mourning before God over failure or remorse over sin. Is it necessary? Not Really, you can have a deeply mournful attitude of heart and a deeply repentant attitude of heart without the application of ashes. It's not ritualistically necessary, but is it wrong? No, I believe it falls into a neutral area. If it helps someone maintain the mindset of repentance, then what could be wrong with it? Now, the last thing I want to mention is extremunction which are words that mean the final anointing. Now, this particular sacrament has more recently become a sacrament of anointing the sick. And usually it's done when the sickness could take a person to death. It's usually involving anointing the person with olive oil or other oils may be used, but it must be performed by a priest, and the oil must be blessed by a bishop during a chrism mass celebrated on a holy Thursday or a day close to it. And, and so there's all these stipulations that are not necessarily biblical. The sick person is anointed, and uh, certain prayers are prayed over that person. In fact, this is the prayer that's prayed during extra emunction. The priest will say, May the Lord in his love and mercy help you with the grace of the Holy Spirit. May the Lord who frees you from sin save you and raise you up. And of course, there's faith at times that 
The anointing service that takes place could pull a person back from sickness, but more often it's done as a prayer that the person will pass from this world to the next, prepared to meet God. Now, unfortunately, there are many who receive extra unction who have never been born again, who have never had a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, who have never really accepted him as Lord of their lives in entirety. And so is extra unction sufficient in preparing them for the next life? Who am I to judge who is going to be ready to meet God and who's not going to be ready? But there's no biblical precedent for this in the New Testament, once again. And so it may be a right of the Catholic Church to pray this prayer and go through this ceremony with a sick person. But is it wrong? No, it's not wrong. Because in James's epistle, it said, if there be any sick among you, let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. But that is an, an expectation of the miraculous recovery of the person being anointed, not just preparation to submit to the grip of death and pass on to the next world. And so while I don't see anything inherently wrong with extra unction, I do think there's a higher level of approaching the anointing of a person that's sick instead of doing it in the mindset that you are accepting the sickness and dying with dignity. I believe the Bible teaches that you should fight against the sickness and expect a miraculous recovery. Well, we've covered all the territory we needed to cover in this podcast. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.